Thank you for downloading this episode of My Perfect Console. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You'll get your episodes early and ad-free, learn about upcoming guests and receive bonus content. Your support also helps fund episodes just like this one. Head to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is a Japanese video game director, producer and executive officer at Square Enix. Born in 1966 in Fusa City in the suburbs of Tokyo, he studied filmmaking at Nihon University. After graduating, he was working at an animation studio when he first played Final Fantasy on the Famicom and immediately saw the dramatic potential of the video game medium. Despite having no technical skills, he joined Square in 1990 to work as an event planner involved in level design for Seiken Densetsu, or Final Fantasy Adventure, for the Game Boy. Four years later, he directed the sixth mainline Final Fantasy, a game widely considered to be a classic. A protégé of the company's founder, Hironobu Sakaguchi, my guest subsequently worked on many of the company's best-loved titles, and now serves as brand manager for the Final Fantasy series. 
My father would complain that he had no idea what was going on when I played RPGs at home after school, he once told me. This made me want to make games that those watching the screen beside the player might also find interesting. Welcome, Yoshinori Kitase. So, um, uh, Kitase-san, you've been traveling this last month all around the world, promoting a new game that's coming out, speaking at BAFTA recently. Do you enjoy、uh, foreign travel and speaking to journalists? Yes, absolutely.、Um, it's so nice to experience the culture in you know, a new country that I haven't visited before, exploring the region and, and that locale, and、uh, seeing things that may contribute or、uh, act as inspiration towards the next title. And it's also always fun to communicate and engage with the fans there as well. So, you're, of course, promoting Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, which is the second in a series of lavish remakes of the classic 1997 game. How aware were you when you were making the original all that way back in 1997 that this would still be a game that was loved and played nearly 30 years later? Yes, so of course, you know, Final Fantasy itself has just kind of continued on、um, as a series and、uh, has been, you know, beloved at this time. And,、uh, you know, considering the Final Fantasy VII title and its appeal to many of its fans, I do consider its unique storyline and its worldview. And at the time, I, I was not aware that it was going to be something that was going to be this influential and beloved throughout these decades. But I, I believe these are some of the factors that have contributed to it being so. Part of the magic of the Final Fantasy series is that each new game is distinct. It's a new universe, new characters, and a fresh story with just a few recurring ideas. That's, that's also the challenge, of course, because each time you go to make one, you're starting from scratch. As the person responsible for the direction of the series, what, what pressure do you feel as you, as you plan for the future? So, in terms of the pressure that's ma-、uh, mentioned in crea- continuously creating these new titles, Final Fantasy. Games itself is, is something that's not created just by you know, one person, but through the hands of many directors. And so, in the way, I believe it is our challenge and mission to not be you know, stuck on、uh, you know, those sort of past titles and,、um, however, sort of look back into our past and not feel、uh, this pressure to、um, stay in one, one course of production and just keep on. Challenging ourselves is what I strive to do, and also to be able to create that sort of environment in which directors can continue to challenge themselves and、uh, embark on creating a new type of experience. Of course,、um, with Final Fantasy XVI coming out. Last year, and now with Rebirth coming out as well.、Um, this was also my intent in having the directors be able to create something that you know, allows them to this free expression in a way that's not confined to perhaps some of the traditions and the, the previous Final Fantasy titles. But of course, when we consider the history of Final Fantasy VII, And、um, you know, so many of its fans that love the original title, there is, I think, that pressure that you speak of, of、um, respecting、uh, the original title and, and considering its existing fans. 
I believe that our uh, sort of success and positive response that we've gained in Remake and uh, how that was accepted in the world has sort of allowed us to go into rebirth and be able to go further in creating something new. The pressure that you mentioned there, you've got obviously pressure from fans and who have different ideas of what they want a Final Fantasy game to be, perhaps depending on which one they really enjoyed. You also have pressures on the business side from shareholders who want each Final Fantasy to make a lot of money. And I imagine you also have pressure from younger staff working on the game who have their own ideas of how to evolve the series. You know, as the person sort of in charge of Final Fantasy with all of these different voices, how do you decide whose opinion you're going to listen to? So, you know, of course, there's both, um, you know, the pressure that we feel from the existing fans and wanting to kind of respond to what they are desiring, as well as, you know, sort of in that business shareholder aspect that you've mentioned. Um, But at the same time, um, we are always kind of looking out to gain new fans and, um, you know, reach this like wider audience to have as many people play our titles as well. Um, So those are things that I'm especially mindful of. You know, within a series, of course, when we take a look at something that sort of has multiple parts, as in this remake series, of course, when we look at the first title and and how many players we were able to reach, we, you know, certainly want to reach an even, you know, wider range uh, of players in its sort of second iteration and keep growing in that sense. Um, So that was something I, 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 uh, you know, had wanted for Rebirth. So with Remake, you know, we were able to reach around 7 million players um, in that first uh, title within the series. Um, And so on Rebirth, of course, um, we want to keep expanding on that. And so now with the um, PlayStation Plus subscription, um, we're looking to reach, you know, an even wider user base. And also uh, with the twin pack that combines both uh, the Remake and Rebirth title, um, we're hoping to, again, you know, reach more users that will play Remake and also play, play Rebirth as well. Um, so we're looking to expand in that in those ways. A second point that um, I'm considering is that for many of the FF, you know, mainline series, um, they tend to be a bit more story focused and story driven. But for Rebirth, we're really hoping for sort of for like a word of mouth effect because there is such a sort of enticing gameplay that is very exciting and also you know unique to the individual with the expanded world map and sort of the freedom of play that it allows. And so we're really looking for our fans and uh, media influencers to, you know, post, uh, you know, different versions of their own gameplay that they have sought out um, from this game. And since uh, no, not one will be the same, um, I'm certain. And, you know, I think this will be really exciting and, um, you know, fun to see how each person plays this game. You know, I'm... Obviously, everyone hopes that the game does very well and that all of your games sell lots of copies. The, uh, speaking to you as a creative person, as an artistic person, though, the risk, I suppose, when anyone creates something where they're thinking about the audience too much, they're thinking about how can I make this appeal to lots of people, you know, whether that's a video game or a film or a book or anything, is that it ends up not really appealing to anyone. You have to have a vision, you have to be making something that is for yourself and then sort of magically that then 
turns out to appeal to lots and lots of people. That's how the best works often often come about. You know, for example, I don't feel like Chrono Trigger was made by a committee who were trying to make a game that would sell lots of copies. They were making a game for them, and then it became a classic that was loved. Is not the risk that you're focusing too much on how how a game's going to be received? How, how do you maintain that focus on making something that you are going to love yourself? So certainly, when you know when we were making you know six and or uh, and seven as well, and when uh, this was released into the world, and uh, right when you know Final Fantasy started gaining more recognition globally, this is certainly a point where we you know started considering you know more of the sort of eyes and uh, responses of the world. And I think you know we were still feeling this way when we were creating eight. But as we continue to you know interact um, with the fans abroad um, through uh, you know various opportunities, it did occur to us, and it, it was you know opinion from the media and uh, and fans as well that it, they had wanted our company and our devs, our development team to continue to preserve our vision and this uniqueness of this Japanese uh, studio creating these video games that makes us very distinct and unique. And at the time, this was when in, uh, you know, animation, Japanese animation as well, Miyazaki films were also being very much recognized throughout the world as, as, as well. You know, so, so given that and, you know, given these responses and feedback and, uh, you know, that we were gaining from around, I would say, Final Fantasy X and onwards, I believe we did very much focus on more on uh, preserving or kind of leaning more in towards what we had um, wanted to create for ourselves and retaining the sort of essence and character of uh, this team. You know, having said that, I would think that for a title that is completely new and, you know, has not been done before, of course, um, it is easier, in a sense, to just focus on what uh, we would like to create for ourselves, just because no one has ever seen it before and it hasn't gone out into the world yet. But for something like, you know, Seven that has um, already been sort of released over so many years and it's already reached the, the eyes and, you know, it's it's kind of kind of left our hands in 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 our way in some way um of course you know when you were, were when you know one works with something like that and now creating this remake of course you know we it, it's sort of a must for us to consider this audience and the fans that have loved this this already existing title so um we did um you know take that into consideration quite a bit when creating the remake series yes i understand Right, well, we'd better come to the premise of the podcast. So uh, Kitasis and I have asked you to pick the five video games you'd like to put on your very own perfect fictional games machine. I'm very interested to talk to you about your choices, which are surprising, I think. So let's start with the the first game, though. So this is from 1987. Uh, What is the game and why do you love it? Yeah, I just wanted to say that it was so challenging for me, really difficult to choose five games. <laughs> so the first game that I picked is the original Legend of Zelda.
when did you first play play this game and what are your memories of of the game of that time Yes, so I think I was in college at the time, I believe around 1987 or 89, something around there. For me, you know, this was kind of one of the first times playing a game at home, um, sort of outside of an arcade setting, as well as the first time that I played something outside of an action game um, like Super Mario, where now this is an action RPG that has its own storyline um, and its own sort of world and field that um, one can explore. So I remember it being really, um, you know, fresh and fun for me. Did you uh, did you play it by yourself or were you, did you have siblings or uh, were you playing it with your parents as well? Yeah, so, you know, it was a single-player game, so I remember playing it by myself, but I remember sort of trading off day and night between my siblings. <laughs> How many uh, brothers and sisters do you have? Yes, so we were four siblings, all guys, and I was the <laughs> third, uh, you know, of, of them. And so I had two older brothers, uh, one younger brother, and I remember really fighting um, amongst each other to play uh, this game with my my older brother as well as my younger brother. <laughs> Did uh, any of your siblings go into work into the video game industry? No, um, they are not in games at all. They're actually still uh, working kind of in, in the hometown um, that you mentioned in the beginning. Um, I, I'm from Futsa City, uh, which is a city north of Tokyo, so... They are working there. At the time, you know, just working in the games itself was very, you know, rare and unusual in some ways. Um, it wasn't really recognized um, so much as, as a career. And, you know, I didn't really know about it and my family didn't know about it. So, um, you know, it was something very new at the time. Mm -mm, yes. Of course, um, Legend of Zelda was directed or, you know, made, conceived by um, Shigeru Miyamoto. Um, have you ever had chance to meet him in your career? Yes, I've met him just once. Mm -hmm. Did you talk about Zelda? Uh, we actually didn't talk about Zelda, but uh, when we did talk, it was about uh, something very secret. Oh, okay. That sounds exciting. <laughs> but at the time, you know, something I remember was that, uh, you know, seeing that Nintendo itself is a company that not only makes software, but also, you know, hardware like the Famicom 64, Switch and so on. So I do remember uh, having this impression that they were planning to create a Super Mario that really, um, you know, builds upon uh, the hardware and the consoles that uh, they were creating. <laughs> At the time, they were developing the Super Mario um, 64 for the Nintendo 64 console. And, uh, you know, they were, this was the sort of first time, you know, now it's much more commonplace that they, um, but at the time they were, uh, um, you know, implementing the analog stick and as well as this sort of 3D camera work in, in video games that was very innovative at the time. And I remember feeling very inspired, um, you know, talking about this. So you mentioned that uh, growing up in uh, Futsa City in north of Tokyo, um, what uh, what kind of kid were you when you were when you were that age? What did you like to do, and um, what were you like at school? Up till around age ten or so, I really liked playing outside, playing baseball. But then uh, from middle school, around uh, you know age twelve and onwards, I loved playing uh, video games. So I was at an arcade. I would just go straight to the arcade right after school. 
um, and uh, that was what I did. Were your parents okay with that? Because sometimes parents can, you know, have a have a poor view of uh, uh, game centers. My parents actually, I don't remember them being that strict. And, you know, if it, once I came home and if I would just go to the arcade, I don't really recall them um, really saying much about it. But, you know, arcades and, and uh, going there does uh, cost a bit of money. So there was that. And uh, I remember, you know, saving a, a lot of my 10 yen coins so that, um, you know, I could play these games. And at the time, with five 10 yen coins, so for 50 yen, um, one could play for about an hour. Um, so it was like that. Mm-hmm. What was uh, what was his favorite game in the arcade? So it's very kind of minor or niche, but there was one called Mr. Do uh, uh. that uh, you could spend 50 yen and play, you know, one or two hours worth. <laughs> Amazing. For sort of a slightly more well-known title, I really liked Afterburner. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that you were an artist uh, when you were when you were a young person. You draw your own comic books and things like that. What kind of what kind of comics did you like to uh, to invent? Uh, wow, I didn't know that people knew that about me. <laughs> this really wasn't something you know a professional. Yeah, I wasn't trying to become a pro manga artist or anything like that. And it was more so, you know, things that, uh, comics that I would make and show to my classmates at school. So uh, things, I, I remember, you know, making one about a detective series. So like, you know, for one, the first part, I would I would draw the sort of crime part and uh, show that to my classmates. And then, you know, the following day, so show the sort of solution or, you know, detective uh, crime solving part. There was one moment where I did, um, you know, purchase some proper paper and ink and really considered for a second about entering one of those uh, manga contests. But, um, you know, I just decided not to immediately since I just wasn't all that great. Uh, But I do think if I had, you know, like an iPad or Photoshop at the time, um, you know, maybe I could have done more with it. Mm -mm. Does he remember what the name of uh, his detective character was? (laughs) <laughs> so since my last name is Kitase and that starts with the key sound, um, I had the, you know, key and then I circled it and the circle in Japanese is Maru. So I called him Maruki. Very nice. Detective Maruki. Detective Maruki was the name. Mm-hmm. Okay, we better come to uh, come to Kitase-san's second game choice. This is from 1992. Um, can you tell us about this game? What is it and, and what was it that you loved about it? Hi. So uh, this is the title Alone in the Dark.
And at the time, I played this on my PC, and it is has these you know animated 3D characters upon a full render background. Um, where the camera work changing throughout, and so there's these sort of 3D polygons、um, moving through it, and you know thematically it was a horror game. And, and. so this title was also, I would say, you know, somewhat of an inspiration to me for Final Fantasy VII in its visual style. So then, what was it? Um, until then,、um, I recall, you know, mostly seeing games in which we have this sort of bird's eye view、um, of these 2D pixel characters、um, moving about. But this game was very different in that it just utilized a variety of camera angles, sort of changing throughout. You'd have, you know, different low angles and、um, here and there, which really allowed and you know brought about this really dramatic. Uh, cinematic expression, and so you know, this was uh, uh, an inspiration to me. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. Me. So、uh, yeah, let's come to. We'll fast forward through your time working at, at university, and then you joined an animation company. And it was there when you saw the advertisement to join Square.、Um, do you remember what the advertisement said? Um, I honestly don't remember much of the sort of details of it, but I do recall it wasn't anything complicated at all. It was just a you know single colored ad that had the sort of descriptions、uh, that of of what they were seeking for in the center. Very simple, and so in that way, I, it was somewhat eye catching to me. I knew of the Final Fantasy series at the at the time, and that you know Square was creating these titles, and you know having played、uh, you know works like Legend of Zelda and gaining this appreciation for the RPG genre, and、uh, you know knowing that、uh, Final Fantasy、uh, titles were also、um, you know RPG games,、um, I knew that I wanted to work for a company、um, that creates、uh, games like that. Do you remember anything about the interview? Who was the Who was the interview with, and what did they ask you? Yeah, I'm on the grass with. So I think that it was most likely with Sakaguchi-san as well as Tanaka-san from、uh, Seiken Daisensu Final Fantasy Adventure. You know, during the interview, I remember you know saying that、uh, since I studied animation in college,、um, you know, I I pretty much had close to no knowledge of game creation and development. But so it was, you know, hard for me to answer questions、um, in in that realm.、Uh, but then I did submit this、uh, short film, which was kind of like a music video that cr I created during my time at school. 
And um, I found out later on um, afterwards that um, Sakaguchi-san really enjoyed sort of that, you know, the expression and the way that I had created this film. And apparently uh, the president of Square at the time was very much um, against me getting hired, but uh, Sakaguchi-san really loved my video that I made. um, And so uh, that led to me getting hired, perhaps. It was a very young company at the time. I think everyone was sort of in their early 20s and some people were still only just, you know, finishing up as students. Um, what was the atmosphere like? What do you remember about the, the office and the, um, yeah, the atmosphere around? So, yeah, you know, when I had joined a Square at the time, um, you know, it was right after, you know, graduating college. I was in my early 20s and, and quite young. Um, so I was a new hire, but I recall it, you know, being really easy to um, kind of work alongside and, and get along with, you know, some, some of the more, you know, senior uh, staff because we were all very much close in age. You know, same with the, you know, later main programmer of uh, Final Fantasy VII, Narita-san, and uh, also with um, Sakakuchi-san. Um, of course, he was already also quite established in, in this management position and, you know, in, in of, a, of a, you know, senior position than, than I. But um, it was also very, you know, easy to kind of work alongside him as well, um, since we had uh, many young uh, staff in the office, um, they would kind of like, we would all kind of work uh, very late into the night. And I recall sometimes during our breaks, uh, someone would whip out a guitar and, you know, start singing and it would just be kind of this merry party just happening. Um, it was uh, sort of like that. You went quite quickly from being an event planner to becoming a director. Uh, just three years, I suppose, after you joined the com- company that you're working as director for Final Fantasy VI. Um, yeah, what what was that like? Why do you think they gave you such a important position on their most important series? What was it that earned you that opportunity? So for that, I think it was, you know, coming from uh, Sakaguchi-san's um, desires and his, you know, more sort of inclination towards uh, wanting to develop the cinematic storyline and kind of implement um, more of this sort of um, dramatic feel in the stories that we create from around um, Final Fantasy IV and so on. And, um, you know, of course, uh, you know, I, I managed to kind of get hired through my own promotion video that I created, um, not so much on, you know, that like game development skills or whatnot, um, you know, having studied, uh, you know, movie animation um, throughout college. And so I think, you know, those two parts sort of, um, you know, my own skills um, in, in animation and Sakobuchi-san's um, sort of desires and uh the direction that he was hoping to go for for the Final Fantasy series, I think, was a was a good match, um, and, and it led to this. So, uh, Final Fantasy V um, was the first time that um, you know I had worked together uh, with Sakaguchi-san. Uh, we were both working on the event and um, cutscenes at the time, um, but. I, you know, I recall his dedication and passion in, in creating the sort of opening of Final Fantasy V, um, where, uh, you know, we see the sort of castle um, and, and the dragon. And uh, I had a lot of learnings and teaching from, from him there that I had applied. And I think um, sort of our efforts there and in working together, um, I believe, was sort of recognized and, you know, led to 
um, sort of my involvement with six um, following this title. Yeah, makes sense. Right, let's uh, let's come to your third game then. So, what is this game? So, the third title that I'm introducing is Hearts of Iron. Um, it is a strategy video game series um, that's uh, based on uh, World War II, and it's sort of a real-time uh, strategy video game. Yeah, so I think people might be surprised that uh, you uh, is someone very well known for making um, Japanese style RPGs. Is sort of into this kind of game. <laughs> when did um, when did that uh, passion uh, originate? And what is it that you love about this particular style of game? Um, so, you know, when I first joined Square, um, uh, we all, you know, got to kind of work with uh, Macintosh computers um, at the time. And I remember playing, you know, SimCity, um, which was, you know, this great sort of real-time uh, simulation game experience. So, you know, along with the sort of action RPG uh, games like Zelda that I was very, you know, inspired and um, had a ton of fun playing um, sort of real-time strategy and simulation type games is another uh, sort of favorite of mine. Um, so, you know, Hearts of Iron sort of falls into that realm. Um, same with Age of Empire. So, you know, sort of a, the main kind of games within this genre um, I really enjoy. You know, and, and uh, with Hearts of Iron, there's other games, um, you know, within uh, the sort of genre of sort of strategy by uh, Koei Tecmo like uh, Nobunaga's Ambition or like Three Kingdoms. Um, but many of these sort of real-time strategy games are usually one where, you know, if you sort of win against the other person, you sort of immediately gain uh, this land or you're able to occupy um, that area. But uh, for me, what's very unique and interesting about Hearts of Iron is that, um, so, you know, you're supposed to kind of start out by, uh, you know, starting a, a war, but it's not so that the land kind of immediately becomes yours and you're immediately able to occupy it, but um, you're supposed to form these like alliances with, uh, you know, different uh, countries and then also kind of end the war by doing so and then negotiate to then, um, you know, make this land your own. And, uh, you know, I felt that this kind of mechanism and system was really intriguing and, and very different and makes us also kind of reflect, feels very relevant today as well, um, you know, with, you know, wars going on in our in our real world as well. And makes me reflect on and, and understand um, why perhaps wars, wars are ongoing and, and uh, do not end so easily. And so it, gave, it really gave me that, that uh, you know, perspective. So it's a very interesting game to me in that way. 
I'd like to ask you about a, a rather difficult period in the company's history about 20 years ago when uh, the your your mentor and the company's founder uh, Sakaguchi-san departed. This was after the Hollywood film, which uh, did not, I think, perform quite as well as everyone had hoped. What do you what do you remember of that time personally? Um, so, of course, around that time, um, sort of in the year 2000, that was when we were, you know, planning uh, many sort of many uh, FF mainline titles as head, like 10, um, 11, uh, which would be, the, you know, the first uh, online title. Um, 12 and so on and these are all you know currently being planned and in discussion and uh with sakaguchi-san as well being you know this mentor and um you know someone that i had worked alongside and i had you know grown um with from within the company um of course it was uh you know very sort of somber time for me um to experience uh his his leaving in in terms of the movie itself you know, the sort of plans and discussions for the movies um, were sort of happening right around the same same time. Um, you know, it, it was already in production uh, when uh, the game uh, Final Fantasy VII came out. And actually, the sort of concept of the life cycle that is in Final Fantasy VII was um, initially sort of Sakaguchi-san's original idea that is um, actually also in- incorporated in the film as well and you know is uh, you know part of the plot kind of also deals with this sort of life cycle concept and so i believe you know the film also includes um sakaguchi-san's you know sort of visions and uh, beliefs on on his cycle of life and you know wanting to include this as well and in terms of you know what the movie was trying to accomplish at the time there were other full CG movies such as um, Toy Story that was, you know, uh, sort of animated, you know, fully animation. But at the time, this was sort of the first time anyone was attempting something that was, you know, extremely photorealistic, a movie in full CG like that. And so just to sort of, you know, considering this, that pure ambition of um, trying to, you know, go about this huge challenge of, um, trying to create something that uh, the rest of the you know the rest of the world has not you know quite accomplished before, and that sort of spirit I think still lives on within a Square Enix, and you know it's sort of alive within our creators uh, today, you know despite uh, Sakaguchi-san's departure. When um, Sakaguchi-san left the company, quite a few staff members left with him, or after he went. Were you tempted to go yourself, and what convinced you to stay? So I think there were, you know, two main reasons for me in deciding to stay at the time. And I think one was that while, you know, Sakaguchi-san, I believe, um, you know, was this creator that, you know, has sort of established this history for himself and, and was also you know, had worked on these, you know, various projects throughout his sort of legacy and time here. I myself was still feeling as though I was still kind of forming my vision and um, still kind of working um, towards that in that regards. And so I felt, so that was, you know, one of the reasons that I felt to stay. And, um, you know, sort of as a, a second reason um, also was I felt that 
I, you know, truly wanted still for Sakaguchi-san also to have this sort of point of connection also, you know, with the Final Fantasy series, you know, despite his his departure. So, you know, that was that was another sort of consideration. Of course, you know, once he went kind of independent, there was not sort of a connection back into Final Fantasy until um, 2016 um, with the uh, Mebius uh, Final Fantasy, which was the smartphone game. And that was the first time in which, you know, since he, uh, Sakaguchi-san, had left, um, that, you know, he was able to sort of promote and sort of be sort of connected to the Final Fantasy franchise again. Um, at that time, you know, for with the Athena, Athena battle. And nowadays, uh, he can be sort of uh, seen again uh, with, uh, you know, promos for sort of Pixel Remaster or through the Fan Fest. Um, and, uh, you know, he kind of continues to be, to retain this kind of connection there. But uh, that was also a consideration for me. Let's come to your fourth game. This is from uh, 2020, I believe. Can you tell us about this one? So this game is called Factorio, and it is a city construction and management simulation game that I really love. Factorio was a game that I, you know, really stumbled upon, you know, by chance, I think on Steam, I saw it uh, as sort of an indie game. And like with uh, Hearts of Iron and uh, playing uh, SimCity on the Macintosh and kind of becoming very interested in this simulation types game, it caught my eye. And in particular, um, I really enjoy the sort of building this automated industry aspect of this game in which uh, you have to harvest um, resources from this planet and, you know, you would be harvesting iron and uh, other kind of materials, um, you know, converting it into energy and then later food. And by also sort of placing machine parts and um, of the mecha into different cities, you're able to kind of further develop it and progress in like automation in order to continue um, developing this planet and that sort of dynamism and dynamic nature of this game was very appealing to me. In Japan, uh, there is a program called Pitagora Switch, 
which showcases essentially this Rube Goldberg machine, um, you know, the type where there's chain reaction um, happening from these various carefully placed um, items that all together form and uh, sort of interact with each other and, and uh, perform some type of task. So it was uh, very similar in this way with Factorio, this similar delightful feeling that I gained by, um, you, you know, you have to kind of harvest your own materials to create iron. And then uh, you were able to set up this arm machine to then grab this iron and then transport it to this this other region. And being able to think of these chain reactions and place various items in order to perform these tasks um, on my own that, uh, you know, required this sort of thinking and strategic planning uh, was very much fun for me. So I think that was one of the major draws. So if you think about it, it's a it's a little like programming, um, like in FF12, um, there's that gambit system um, that allows one to combine these independent abilities to then form this new combo that has its own effect. And so very similar to programming, I think it, this really caught my attention and, and uh, engaged me. Um, in that way of being able to, um, you know, choose these different, you know, independent um, items and then uh, find a way to put them together um, in a way that f- uh, performs this unique task that I'm trying to accomplish. You've, uh, you've been working at uh, Square for nearly 35 years now, half a lifetime. Are you still excited to go to work every day? So, I know. Um, so before, you know, when I first started, it was definitely a bit more hands-on in which I would, you know, work directly on a certain cutscene or even, you know, go as to creating a, you know, 3D animation myself back in the day, you know, with the technology at the time, you know, which which was, you know, very fun. But as we kind of continued to sort of develop and create games and sort of greater details, of course, there's, you know, kind of more particular issues that arise, you know, within game production um, as well. And, uh, you know, this definitely is something that occurs when you're trying to kind of, you know, continuously create something at this higher level. And, of course, with that and with the more, you know, um, details and this uh, higher level of game making, there's sort of a new level of like uh, technological or technical hurdles um, that we must overcome as well. Um, so, of course, uh, you know, with sort of these uh, greater games that were we're, you know, continuing, continuing to, to make the, the sort of, there are similar issues that, uh, you know, come up in that way too. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, probably include myself in this, you know, the real golden era for me of Square, Squaresoft was around the time of Final Fantasy VII, I suppose, where there were just so many interesting games coming out. Xenogears, Vagrant Story, Einhander, Brave Fencer, Musashi Den... Prism, just so many all the time and um you know why was i there's part of me i suppose that would like to go back to that time where there's lots of new ips coming through and new kinds of interesting games but i suppose these days game production is a lot more expensive but you know is that is that how it is for you do you feel nostalgic for that time of your life when um there was it just there was so much possibility and so much opportunity to make different kinds of games that is maybe much harder now. So 
I do think, you know, that feeling of nostalgia is something, you know, important and key. And of course, you know, the, the titles and the games that we have loved and bring us these feelings are equally important. But at the same time, I don't think it's necessary or perhaps good to fixate on keeping this uh feeling of nostalgia and try to recreate that per se in in the modern age because if we were to bring uh like sort of games that we had played back then and just play them exactly as is now i think you know the second we start up the game of course we would feel that feeling of of nostalgia pop up but i think it would also just kind of be satisfied immediately and wouldn't continue on you know with titles that i mentioned before like sim city that i have loved i think despite it being nostalgic if i were to play this again i don't know if it would be able to sort of continue to sustain my interest and for me to you know continue playing it throughout uh for the full time even if it was a game that i really enjoyed so i think as a player or as someone playing a video game the feeling of you know playing this sort of beloved title from years back is is nice and you know is is something that we can do but um as sort of a creator i think that is something you know a, a bit more difficult to to do and sort of pull off uh, so has a question for you Simon so you know Chrono Trigger the title that you mentioned is also a a title that I've worked on um that I know you know fans love to this day and um you know I also like this game personally um but if players are to play this game today what would be sort of the most favorable way in which it is presented would it be something that's just directly you know as is from before on a modern uh platform console or is it something that where the graphics are remastered or is it something like Final Fantasy 7 remake where you know the game design visuals are completely revamped and updated to meet the modern trends <laughs> this is uh this is above my pay grade <laughs> this question but um Thanks. I think I I liked how Nintendo did um the Legend of Zelda a link to the past which is from a similar era it's you know a year or two before Chrono Trigger and it was um not a full remake like Final Fantasy 7 Rebirth but it was sort of in between it was still top down but it used new assets and a few new game ideas that seemed like a very elegant way to to make a 16-bit Super Nintendo Super Famicom game for the contemporary era but yes please do that <laughs> thank you so much um, that's a great uh input oh thank you we should uh, we should come to the last game before i get into trouble so <laughs> um this is uh this is yeah a, a, a recent game a remake tell us about your fifth and your final choice please kitase-san um this is the title that i have continued to work on and now we have the remake series coming out and this is the final fantasy 7 
So yeah, you've been talking about this game for a very long time. Do you ever do you ever get tired of talking about Final Fantasy VII? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then, then. not at all. I can continue talking about it. <laughs> when did you do, when did you last play through the original game? I, I suppose you played it through in order to work on this remake. When uh, yeah, what what struck you when you played through the original game after a bit of distance? Did you enjoy it? Saw this now. My first impression was, wow, the mid-card part was so short. I didn't realize that. <laughs> so, um, you know, when we were looking into sort of this remake project and looking at it as a trilogy, kind of considering the how much remake is going to cover, we had decided upon, upon Midgar. But when, you know, I look back at the original and seeing sort of how short that actual Midgar part felt to me, um, I was at first a bit, you know, worried about, you know, having this uh, be the part of Remake, but kind of seeing how we were able to create it and then now going into Rebirth and, uh, you know, seeing the kind of uh, volume of content that we were able to provide uh, within this game, you know, I feel quite, um, you know, happy and sort of satisfied with this decision of how we kind of allocated uh, the parts of the story to the to the trilogy. Have you decided how many games you're going to make uh, to to remake the entirety of Final Fantasy VII? So we will be telling the story of Final Fantasy VII through three titles. Um, it will be consolidated into a trilogy. And, you know, with how we were able to work with Rebirth and what we were able to put there, um, you know, I, I am confident that we're able to uh, conclude the story with the, the third and last title. Going back to also how I felt um, and things that struck me when I went back to play the original, there were two main feelings that I recall. One was that uh, I recall, you know, feeling, oh, you know, this is quite well done. You know, it's it's a pretty good piece of work was something I felt. And but at the same time, you know, the second part was kind of looking at and uh, realizing sort of the uh, in terms of the character expressions and uh, sort of visually, it was still very raw and, you know, sort of blocky in, in, in some ways. So, you know, both of those um, somewhat contrasting, but, you know, feelings both lived within me and um, those put together, I think, um, you know, still uh, made it this kind of good place to kind of work from and, uh, you know, kind of a, to a foundation to move from there. Yeah, they're still quite charming. I think those blocky characters um, from the original, I, I like it. Let's uh, just go through your console then. So we've got The Legend of Zelda, Alone in the Dark. The Hearts of Iron games, Factorio, and Final Fantasy VII. 
a very fine console. Um, Kitasis, and we need a name for your console so that we can market it to the world. What would you like to call your your very own console? Maruki, o n e g a s h i m a s Detective Maruki. Tante Maruki, this name. Yes. So that was actually my elementary school nickname. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was the main character. So,、uh, yeah, you've been so generous with your time, and I'm going to let you go in just one minute. But I've got one very final question. So, what,、uh, what ambitions do you hold at,、uh, at this stage of your career, Kitase、uh, san? So,、ね、so uh, we've had you know, two large titles within the Final Fantasy series come out, both. You know, coming out last year and also this year、uh, with Final Fantasy XVI and, and Rebirth. And,、um, you know, with it, I do want to, you know, continue to sort of drive forward and,、um, you know, look forward into creating, you know, the next、uh, titles, you know, that will continue to define、uh, the Final Fantasy series and the franchise and continue to create something that will be valuable. To its players and our fans, as well as a foster a kind of environment in which this type of creation can be done、uh, to continue to sort of grow. And the creators and developers、uh, as well are my hopes. Well, thank you so much for your time and、uh, for being so open and sharing your story、uh, with me.、Uh, I really, really appreciate it. And、um, yeah, and I look forward to playing the Chrono Trigger remake as well. <laughs> well, there we have it Yoshinori Kitase, one of the few people working at Square Enix today who was there. In the very, very early days of Square's founding in the late 1980s.、Uh, a man who has worked on some really stunning games. I mean, if he'd only worked on Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, or Final Fantasy VII, that would have been a pretty good record. But of course, he's gone on to have a very long and storied career even, even after then. Yeah, what a, what a thrill that was. I'd like to thank the translator. Uh, she was Hinano Akiyama. Thank you so much for her interpreting there. As you can imagine, it took、uh, quite a lot of setting up to do, to do this episode. And you might also be wondering why I was having a slight panic towards the end there and trying to hustle things along a little bit. Looking at the time of the episode, you're probably thinking, well, it's less than an hour. But of course, you know, you're hearing it with all of the audio running simultaneously and parallel. Uh, when you're actually doing an interview in that format, I ask my question in English. The interpreter then translates it into Japanese. Kitase answers in Japanese. Then,、uh, Hinano then translates into English back to me. So it's a long, old process. And to get that sort of、uh, 50 odd minutes of, of tape, we recorded for the best part of two hours.、Um, so, yeah, that also goes some way perhaps to.、Uh, Uh, explaining why I wasn't always jumping in and following up on certain things that I suppose if we'd been doing、uh, an interview in English, I would have, I would have done. So that's,、uh, it's always going to be a slightly different format. But I think
uh, you know, I hope you enjoyed it. We've got some very interesting uh, anecdotes and insights from, from Mr. Kitase there, I think. Uh, certainly him talking about aspects of his life and his career that uh, that I've never heard him speak about. And I've, I've interviewed him three or four times over my career, uh, not for several years. And uh, I've never heard him certainly ever talk about what it was like when his friend and mentor Sakaguchi-san left the company after the release of the the Spirits of Within. I think the full story of what was happening at the company at that time may may never be told uh, because everyone is very polite and uh, uh, sort of uh, you know did, tells the story to, that leaves everyone in the best possible light. But as Kitase said in that interview, it was obviously a difficult time to live through for everyone in the company, especially for his friends, uh, oh, for Sakaguchi-san's friends. So, yeah, uh, it was, anyway, interesting to hear some of that. Um, how exciting to, <laughs> to be asked as well about uh, my opinion on, on how they should remake Chrono Trigger. Yes, I like to think I am, of course, the first person they'd call about that. <laughs> it did take me by surprise a little bit, so... Uh, I'm sure there are some of you that are like, why the hell did you answer that? Why didn't you say, yeah, we want a full Final Fantasy Rebirth-style remake of the game? Uh, but I don't know. I mean, Chrono Trigger is a game that's very dear to my heart. I played it on the on the Super Nintendo. Of course, it didn't come out in the UK in 1995 when it was released. It only came out in Japan and America, so I had an import cartridge that I still own. Got the best ending on that game. It's a tremendously well-written game that really brought together Sakaguchi and Yuji Horii, the creator of Dragon Quest, the other great and extremely popular role-playing game in Japan. Those two writers came together to create Chrono Trigger, and in my opinion, it's their best work from the 1990s, that sort of 16-bit era. Uh, so yeah, I, it makes sense that they'd want to explore releasing that in some format again, and uh uh, I hope my answer didn't upset you too much. One slightly embarrassing mistake I made there is, of course, I referred to Legends of Zelda A Link to the Past remake, which uh, which doesn't exist. I was, of course, talking about Link's Awakening, uh, the remake of the Game Boy game from a couple of years earlier. So, uh, you know, there's a little bit confusing, possibly, for everyone involved. But, uh, you know, the games are from a similar era, and I think point... Uh, hopefully still stands but uh, yeah I was on the spot apologies uh, I have been playing Final Fantasy Rebirth uh, Square Enix was kind enough to send me a review code um, yeah it is certainly you know in that final answer obviously we didn't have much time to really get into his memories of Final Fantasy 7 I've also interviewed him many times about that game in the past um, but uh, yeah we were a bit pressed to get into it all but as as uh, Kitase San was saying there the you know the first game in this trilogy focuses on the city of Midgar so everything that happens in there and this second game that's about to come out that comes out the week this episode drops is uh you know sort of you're you're out into the open world and that's very much the way in which uh, the team has has reinterpreted that section of Final Fantasy it sort of draws upon all of the open world fashions of the day but you know with a Final Fantasy 7 twist it feels a bit, in fact, like, you know, Final Fantasy VII Disneyland at times, I'd say. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm having a, I'm having a blast. I've been playing about eight or nine hours, so I'm only, I guess, a, 
uh, a very short amount into it comparatively to the full runtime of the game but uh, yeah I'm having a good time so look out for reviews when those drop I don't think I'm reviewing it myself but uh, I'm sure if you're interested in reading more about that game or watching uh, footage of it it will be all over social media and the internet towards the end of this week that you are listening to this right uh, thanks for listening to this. If this is your first episode of My Perfect Console that you've listened to, I imagine we're going to have quite a few first-time listeners for this episode, then please do delve into the back catalogue. Uh, there are, uh, well, we've got more than 50 or 60, around 60 guests have been on My Perfect Console in the last year and a, and a month or so uh, from across the world of video games, from other industries too, all talking about their favourite games and the games that have define them in some way or attached to special memories for them uh, you can jump in and listen to some of those episodes please do subscribe leave a review give us a, a rating if you have enjoyed this and yeah certainly do go back and listen to some of the episodes because you're in for some some treats i think gonna be releasing a new feature this this month this is uh, going to be for the Patreon supporters. So if you are a Patreon supporter, then listen up. If you're not, then consider going to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and supporting the podcast. This is a new feature called My Perfect Console Game of the Month, where we will be playing collectively, all of the podcast listeners who, who want to, playing a game from one of my guests in the previous month. So, for March, we are going to be playing through one of Yoshinori Kitase's choices. I've decided that game is going to be Factorio, so one of his five games we've just listened to him talk about there. If you want to get involved, download Factorio. It's on Steam, it's on the Nintendo Switch. Uh, I'm not quite sure how much it costs, but you can, you can find that out easily enough. Download a copy of the game. We're going to be playing that together. And uh, if you are a Patreon supporter, I'm going to release a little episode at the end of March just discussing my thoughts on the game as well as any thoughts from you, the listeners who have sent sent those in. Uh, it's the first time we're doing it, so we'll just see what the shape of it is as it goes along. And, uh, you know, if people really like it, we'll do this every month. We'll pick a game that we all, all play together and discuss and enjoy. And I'll try and pick slightly more obscure games that perhaps... Uh, we haven't all played before. Factorio is certainly that for me. I loved hearing uh, Yoshinori's description of the game. And so, yeah, I thought, why not all play that together? And we can learn as a group. So pop along to My Perfect Console on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash My Perfect Console. Become a supporter if you want to. If not, then, you know, some of this stuff will be free to anyone to, to look at. But I think the, the bonus episodes will be for supporters only. You can also follow along with information about the podcast on social media at uh, twitter.com. We are My Perfect Console with the O's removed on Instagram. But of course, Patreon is the best place to find out more about the, the, the podcast. Next week, our guest is Patrick House, the American neuroscientist and writer. Uh, he contributes regularly to The New Yorker, to Slate and Nautilus. And he's got a new book out, 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness, um, all about neuroscience and the different lenses that we can use to look at consciousness. If that sounds a bit highbrow, never fear. Patrick is an, a, a very, very keen video game player 
and he talks wonderfully about five uh, game choices that he wants on his perfect console. So please do come along, like, subscribe, uh, all of that nonsense. And uh, and yeah, be back again next week with Patrick, his five games and one more perfect console.